You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Paula Doyle, who is the former Associate Deputy Director of Operations at CIA, where she oversaw worldwide human operations and activities that required the use of air, land, maritime, space base, and cyber technologies. She was the Deputy National Counterintelligence Executive from 2012 to 2014, where she oversaw the official U.S. damage assessment resulting from Private Chelsea Manning's 2010 authorized disclosures of WikiLeaks and led the IC's extensive review of Edward Snowden's unauthorized disclosures and defection to Russia. She led three CIA stations in Europe, the Levant, and Asia. Prior to joining CIA, she was a Foreign Service officer in three embassies in Latin America and Europe. She's a recipient of several awards from CIA, DNI, DIA, and the NRO, the most significant of which was a CIA Team Trailblazer Award in 2007, for her role in a decade-long effort against a significant nuclear proliferation network. Welcome, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you. So you spent uh, a couple decades in intelligence, uh, you had a long and distinguished career. Was this something you planned? Did you grow up wanting to work in the field of intelligence? I uh, discovered my passion for this work when I was about 17 years old. I did not grow up in any kind of environment that had access to um, overseas living or the idea of being a diplomat or a foreign service officer or an intelligence officer. I grew up in a small rural environment in South Dakota. Um, the life, uh, the world, the world came to our living room through Walter Cronkite. Yeah. We only had three television stations and Walters came in the best. So, um, my, my interest in the world, uh, really was born of watching the news every evening, uh, listening to my parents talk about the McGovern-Nixon campaign, uh, talking about uh, people coming back from Vietnam and getting ready to go to Vietnam, uh, coming from an area that has a deep uh, commitment to service, uh, whether it be joining the military, doing your duty in the community, signing up for any kind of... uh, activity that just needed to be done. Right. Um, so, no, I, I didn't grow up initially with that in mind, but my parents divorced when I was young, and my mother remarried an Air Force guy, mm. 
And suddenly the world changed for me quite dramatically. And uh, by the time I was uh, in high school, we were living in England. And you transitioned from the State Department. Is there a different perspective of the world? I mean, nowadays, a lot of these these different agencies and communities are, are much closely, much more closely linked than they had been perhaps in the past. Going from state to CIA, was this a kind of a culture shock? Was there a dramatic transition in kind of how these agencies viewed the relationship with the rest of the world? Uh, well, I, I had interacted with, with various kinds of people while serving overseas. I didn't always know who the agency people were, but I always knew where, where to find one or two. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the ambassador's aide in one country, so I was part of the country team. Mm-hmm in terms of taking notes and keeping information flowing from the ambassador to to all of the section heads. Uh, so the cultural transition wasn't, wasn't that great. The day-to-day activities were vastly different. Uh, what I found very interesting is that all of us, regardless of agency, get up in the morning and voraciously read. Uh, knowing the world is a really important part of characterizing how you're going to make choices every day. What meetings are you going to keep? What meetings are you going to drop? Um, after I joined the agency, it was what route am I going to take to work? Right. What route am I not going to take to work? What time am I going to go to work? Um, I was much more aware of my surroundings uh, after I had the training. At CIA, but but I will say that um, that doesn't mean diplomats aren't aware. Right. That, that would be grossly unfair. Um, but we look for different things, right. right? We look for different opportunities. You mentioned vociferously reading. Is that kind of the number one piece of advice you would give someone who thinks thinking about this as a career? Uh, what it used to be study political science or study economics or say geography, but now. Just about any major you have in college is a potential path to not just the IC, but even to CIA. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, it, there's less of a direct path for being good at international relations. It's more of what? Is it just wanting to know more about the world and being interested in how the world works? I think it is a matter of whether you want to make history or read about history. And as I joined the State Department, it was such an important opportunity to me, to me to be part of making history, and even more so as I went to the agency and understood the active role it plays in shaping world events and working with people all around the world to do the very same thing. It's a much more activist shaping, in my experience. Mm-hmm. Everyone I've talked to who's gotten to the level that you did at, at, at the agency, meaning a very upper management level, has shifted from duty to duty. Like you, you in your, your bio, we talked about that you did CI work, you, you did operations on the human technology, technology side, you've worked with these other agencies like NRO and others. Do you have to be very, not only well-rounded, but also very adaptable? to have a long career at the agency. Are there, there are very few people that, say, join as a particular analyst on Russia and spend 30 years just doing that one thing. Now, they are, there are people that they do exist, and you know they get very wonky, and they're wonderful, very specific experts on things. 
But a lot of people bounce around and do a lot of different things. Is adaptability or a well-roundedness kind of key component to having a long and distinguished career at CIA? I believe that is a strength, but I will also tell you that the world is a complicated place, and the agency celebrates both experts and people who bounce around a lot. Mm. Um, speaking languages, it, that, that's hard work. So when you uh, do the hard work of acquiring a language, it's really important to keep using it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes these languages are unique. They are only spoken in one or two countries. Right. So, so we do, on the one hand, encourage people to move around. It, trade craft is a trade and a craft. It must be practiced and practiced and practiced. You can't just read about it and know how to detect surveillance. You can't just read about it and, and imagine how to motivate someone. You just have to go do it. Right. And doing it in different languages, in different environments, is what distinguishes uh, a great career, I think. Um, in some countries where it, a unique language is spoken, it's not unusual for officers to go there, go around in the world and do a couple of other things, and then come back. Right. Or to work on that desk in Washington. Um, so, we, so we can have it both ways. Mm -hmm. And I, what I love about the CIA is that if you really have a passion for a program, um, a career development officer might say you might not get promoted if you stay in it, but if you really want to stay in it, that's your choice. You, you can work that out. And not everyone is motivated to get their next promotion. Right. Many, many people are motivated to simply do the best they can against a particular topic for as long as they can. Well, and as fast as geopolitics changes, you never know when your particular field of your expertise may become the most important thing exactly. for American. I mean, I think of all the the Russia experts in the mid 1990s who thought that they would be obsolete forever, and you know, uh, we don't need people who speak Russian anymore. We need Arabic and Farsi and everything else, and and how quickly that can change and swing around again. There will always be a need yes. for Russian speakers. There will always be a need for people who understand history. Yeah. There will always be a need for people to adapt to however the world presents itself at your front door. You don't get to control that. And that's why reading so much about the world, the broad world that presents itself to you, is so important. And, and yes, things do cycle around. And the other thing I would say, Vince, is that um, I was molded and shaped, as I said earlier on, um, in a community where it was important to raise your hand. It was a very small rural environment. If you wanted a basketball team, everybody played. It, it wasn't because all of you were good. It was because all of you were needed or you didn't have a basketball right. team. Um, I, I came across a number of senior officers when I was a junior officer who who asked officers to open their minds and say yes to more and more things. And through that process, I did say yes. I said yes to things that were contrary to being a, a traditional case officer. And I therefore had the opportunity to acquire some areas of expertise that were on the wonky side and became very important in, in shaping my opportunities to serve and my impact, most importantly, the impact I was able to have on small teams and large mm -hmm. teams alike. Well, I mean, it's clear that you, you never know what you're going to be good at until you get to a Got job. Or the agent. It's not like you can learn how to do it in college. 
Right. You can learn some of the basics. You can learn how to learn. Right. But until you actually are fully involved and, and you're exposed to some of these worlds that just cannot be introduced outside of, you know, cl- classified information and the world itself, you don't know what you're going to be good at. Yes. So why not try things? Yeah. Well, let me ask you, you, you served uh, as a station chief and, and we had to be somewhat coy uh, about exactly where, and I, it's completely understandable that we, this is not the first time we've had this conversation. Um, but in a general sense, what can you say about what you did? Like what, how do the rules apply here? Uh, and, and let me kind of give you a little bit of background to what I'm asking about. People have become a little bit more familiar with the world of intelligence, and, and certainly uh, agencies like NSA and others have come out of the darkness to a degree, but there's still a lot of mystery about what happens in an actual CIA station. I mean, pop culture doesn't help, right? You know, you've, you've got this you know, CIA station, everyone's sleeping with everybody else, and they're bumping people off, and they're being attacked and all this. So how much of it is like what we see in pop culture, which I'm assuming is not very much, and, and how much of it is kind of a mundane version of what many of us live every day in our offices, but just the CIA version of that? So I would say um, I never had a boring day, but no two days were exactly alike either, and that appealed to my personality. It appealed to my strengths. I um, find the movies are exciting and fun, and they're filled with glamorous, wonderful people who do unbelievable things. Um, Art does have a way of imitating life, but it amplifies things that cause people to want to watch and read and and think. And uh, so the average day is much much like, you know, wake up in the morning, turn on the news, what's happened while while I was sleeping, how does that impact my day? Read a few newspapers. Um, in my case, I'm not going to say everybody did this, mm-hmm. but this was certainly my my uh, my way of attacking the day. Getting into the office, seeing what kind of correspondence came in on the classified side, talking with the ambassador, talking with other senior members of the staff. Generally, most days start with a meeting. Mm-hmm. You compare notes with, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Oh, that happened last night. Well, you can't do that today. You know, if there's a demonstration somewhere, a roadblock somewhere, you, threats coming at the embassy, sometimes the ambassador will say, no, everybody hunker down. Other days you're out and about. Some days you're in the office, some days you're out. Some days you're yourself, some days you are other people. Right. You adapt to whatever the world presents itself as and do the best you can with it. I imagine the difficulty, and this is probably true for the State Department people as well, is you not only need to have country knowledge of wherever you are, you need to have regional knowledge of some of the relationships between that country and others. And then because we are a democracy, you need to have at least an understanding of some of the domestic things going on in the United States that could affect your abilities to do your job, particularly within countries that there is a fluid relationship with, whether it's, I'm pulling Iran out of a hat, but that basic idea where, Domestic politics here in the United States may play a significant part in how you deal with not only the region, but also the specific country that you're in. Yes, I guess, um, you know, my focus was really in the foreign side of things, but you're, you're right. You, you, you have to factor in what's happening in, in various zip codes in the United States because they travel to see you. Mm-hmm. And um, it, is, it is no 
overstatement or understatement. The world wakes up in many, many corners of the globe, and they read about what's going on in America. Uh, regardless the leadership positions we take, the policies we aspire to, the uh, military engagements we, we are involved with, uh, you would be very surprised at the local village people who are, are, are all around the world listening to a radio and tuning in to what's going on in America. Or if they have access to the Internet, uh, tuning in to what's going on in America. We are that place, that special place, where it is important for us to know overseas kind of what's going on in the, the blogosphere world and in the CNN world, because that's what the world audience is, is reacting to as well. Right. You talked about when you were at the State Department how you might not always know who the agency personnel were. Let me take that a step further. In, in the countries that you operated within, either as a case officer or later as a deputy chief or a chief, how much do you think the counterintelligence personnel of that country knew about you and your – how well did they know who you were in a, in a general sense? You don't have to get specific, obviously, with this, but how much – was it kind of a wink nudge, we know who you are, we can't do anything about it? And how much did you actually be able to pull off keeping people under official cover? So in countries where certainly where I led uh, as chief or deputy, uh, our organization, uh, the local host governments knew. Part of our jobs is to work with the mm -hmm. local host government on a wide variety of, of issues, topics, capabilities, capacity building, uh, training, so that we can do more things together. Uh, I don't really have a good sense for the wink, wink, nod, nod uh, over time because those are the kinds of things foreign governments tend to try to keep to themselves. Right. And there are reasons we, we train ourselves to comport ourselves and to um, protect ourselves. Uh, because the world is watching, whether they're counterintelligence specialists or, or uh, people just looking out the window because a car went by. Right. Anything can pose an interruption to what you're trying to get done that day. So um, we try very hard to just blend into the environment and do our jobs with, without any drama. There's a question I can probably ask anyone in management anywhere, but I'm sure the CIA has a particular slant to it. How much, let me rephrase, is there an art form to knowing when to do something yourself and knowing when to trust and delegate to subordinates and, and, and when it comes to being a chief or a deputy chief of station? Like, is there certain things that you need to do on your level? But is there that kind of a, do you feel it out? Do you use instinct? Do you use intuition to say, this is something that I need to do? Maybe meeting with a very high profile potential asset or potential source or when to trust the people under you to do the job? So trust is a really important part of the organization. We go through the same training in order to trust each other's capabilities and backgrounds. So I have a couple of different ways of tackling that question. One, um, it, experience is really important. Judgment is really important. And, and I like to tell officers and, and, and my students where I teach at Georgetown, you, you, don't, um, you don't develop judgment by doing things correctly. If everything goes well for you, I'm not sure that that creates 
a great judgment decision making for you because you're used to things going great with no consequences. Judgment really comes from making a mistake, adjusting, recognizing it, learning from it, adjusting, and then seeing it coming, seeing that potential challenge coming right at you. So some some people, so if I'm if I were to be meeting with the chief of a service, the chief of the service wants to meet with the chief of the CIA service. Right. Right? It doesn't have to do with me, Paula, as a person. It has to do with how we comport ourselves organization to organization. Um, a very senior um, agent doesn't need to know my position in the agency. He doesn't know. You don't right. walk around with a sign on your forehead that says, no, I'm the COS. Yeah. No, 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 I'm the COS. Yeah. You all become Spartacus, right? <laughs> so so one of the things we train our officers to do is be, 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 be mindful in the moment, know who you're dealing with, prepare well, uh, use good judgment, be mature. So many of the operational traits we look for in people allow us to take a first or second tour officer with very little experience and build upon their personal attitudes, aptitudes, and judgment as you interact with them in the, in the station. Mm -hmm. And then let them go. Let them go meet that most senior person and see how they do. Well, and that was going to segue into my next question really is about the idea of relationship with sources. We've spoken to a lot of case officers, and they all have their own little slight variation on the way they work with assets about you know, how close do they get, how friendly do they get, and how they treat them. Did you approach this relationship in your own special way, or do you, do you advise younger case officers to kind of come up with their own way of doing things, not, not dramatically different than what they've been trained with, but their own little nuance? Look, I think it's really important to be comfortable in your own skin. Um, I'm not a particularly good actress. Uh, I am an intensely personable person. I can't pretend not to be. Uh, so my authenticity in meetings with um, contacts, developmentals, people I recruited, and people that I, I met on a regular base but did not recruit, I was intensely interested in all of them. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know about their families. Were they dads? Were they brothers? Were they sons? Were they moms? Were they aunts? Were they, were, where did they fit in their pecking order in their families? What, were, what do they love? Who did they love? What were they afraid of? What were their fears? Until I understood what made them tick, I tended not to go directly into asking questions. Part of a case officer's job is not only to understand the person's access that you're talking to and their identity, but what makes them tick? What, what would motivate them to tell me something they shouldn't tell me? Right. And how do you get at that if you just race straight to the question? I've never been able to perform in that kind of environment. I, I spent a lot of time investing and in getting to know people, and uh, it paid off very handsomely for me. Well, let me ask you about that. I'm 
about the job that you finally retired from CIA holding, the Associate Deputy Director of Operations for Technology, which um, it's relatively specific. Um, but I want to ask you, like, what was the kind of the foundation of this job? What was it? What did you do on a day-to-day basis? Because a lot of people think, well, human intelligence and technology are kind of their own little fiefdoms, but this is something that's bringing them together. Because they come together. Uh, so the the associate deputy director of CIA for operations technology was a recommendation from the WMD commission. Uh, we had come through the 9-11 commission, the WMD commission came shortly thereafter, and the commission observed that um, DO officers and, and possibly a few others, uh, were not technically savvy, and yet a large part of our intelligence priorities were highly technical in nature. And this went well beyond nuclear, missile, biochem. It went also, within a very short period of time, into the cyber arena. Mm -hmm. Um, I was selected as the slash T. We called it the slash T. I called it the slash T in 2014. And it was an opportunity for me to take my esoteric background. We all have esoteric backgrounds, but uh, in my case, I had a, a, a long relationship with working on various nuclear programs, missile programs, and cyber programs. Um, very strong aptitude and uh, desire to to work on counterintelligence issues as they pertained to uh, cyber. And the constellations came together where I had all three uh, backgrounds mm-hmm. and was very delighted to, to take up the call. So would it be fair to say that this is a kind of a combination of understanding the utilization of technology to help human intelligence operations and at the same time understanding that the human intelligence requirements about other countries' technological achievements and technological development? Is, there, is it both, or is it just one? So it's, uh, it's both. I would say that uh, just given the time frame of my tour, uh, I spent a great deal more time on leveraging technologies to aid the human missions. Um, there's an explosion of technologies. A lot of them are really, really useful, and a few of them are are hugely dangerous that associate two people together in one place at one time. Right. And that is absolutely anathema to protecting a human source in a relationship. So I mean, there's really a battle between technology to assist human intelligence collection and the counterintelligence technology or the technologies out there that can really be problematic for that. I mean, I mean that's true throughout history of technologies and mm-hmm. counter technologies. Um, but, but today, you can't just forge a passport anymore and then all of a sudden, because of biometrics and because of metadata collection, because of all these things, mm-hmm. it makes life a lot easier in some respects because you can create, you know, using everything from SIGINT and, and IMINT and GEOINT and MASINT can make the human intelligence operations better because you have all this technical collection assisting your operations, but you're really kind of put in a position where you've got to be hyper-aware of the potential pitfalls and the technology of whatever targets that you're dealing with. You have to be aware, but you can't let it paralyze you. You, you cannot let it paralyze you. Technology can tell you a whole bunch of things about a city, but it can't walk the city for you. 
you've been abroad, you know what it's like. Maps don't tell you everything. The smells of the city, the sounds of the city, the looks people give you in the city, the chatter that you hear around you as you're walking through a city. You, you, you can use the technology to aid you, but you can't allow it to paralyze you. You still have to get your own eyes, ears, nose, and feet out on the ground to experience the environment, to really know what it is. Is that a mantra that has to be constantly reinforced? Because it seems like it'd be very easy to get into a comfortable position of use, overuse of technology and not really embracing what you just talked about. I mean, It, it does require constant discussion, and it is um, sometimes described as a cultural issue. But that's why we train officers. We train officers very. We, we train officers in many of the same ways that we did in the 1950s because human behavior is human behavior. Um, you still have to be able to get to the human right. at the far end of whatever map grid and and look him in or her in the eyes and figure out what he or she has to say, his or her motivations to tell you that and to decide how quickly it needs to be reported or challenged. And much of it has to be challenged. Right. We'll be right back after this. And now, a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Well, I think on that vein, particularly within the idea of maybe perhaps over-reliance on technology is the proliferation question. Because it's certainly something that we're, we're dealing with on an everyday basis now. I mean, not just about big states like North Korea or Iran, but also non-state actors and others. Um, let me start by asking a little bit about the international environment today. Is, is the system set up in such a way to help deter proliferation? Because the NPT has been around, the non-proliferation treaty has been around now for decades. You know, the idea of uh, the, the nuclear states trying to deter proliferation through everything from economic uh, incentives to kind of carrot stick, you know, using the stick side of things like the destruction of Libyan plants and Iraqi plants by the Israelis back in the 1980s. Is the system designed in such a way? Because there are only really supposed to be five nuclear states in the very, you know, going back a couple of decades, and now we're in the double digits, so it doesn't seem to be doing its job. That's, that's the end of my rant. It doesn't seem to be doing its job. So I'm happy for, for your rant. I uh, <laughs> recently gave some comments to, to a group at Georgetown where we talked about the difference between non-proliferation and counter-proliferation. Mm-hmm. And one of the um, 
reasons I loved my journey in both the department and and the state department and, and, and the CIA was because I got to see the whole spectrum. Non-proliferation, uh, in my experience, was one of again looking for uh, going learning the non-proliferation treaty and looking at the mostly the safeguards area of the non-proliferation treaty working together with international community members who had signed the treaty and and all of us were looking for violations so it was very inspections heavy it was violations heavy and if we found a violation it was a community effort to come together and say okay this particular com uh, country has violated the terms of the NPT. What are we going to do about it? So it was a lot. It was very heavy on demarches, which at the time seemed like a, a potent arm of the U.S. government and the international community. By the 1990s, comma, the proliferators had learned how this worked. And they waited for the demarches. In most countries, the suppliers knew the local laws better than the host governments. And they were ready for the knock on the door by the host country police or host country intel services who would go looking for the source of violations. And they would be perfectly ready with their dual-use certificates. They'd be perfectly ready with the accountings and uh, the, the records, and they would be perfectly ready with their lawyers to say, we've not done anything wrong. We have not violated usually European laws. And so as I came over to CIA, I'm looking at the world from their direction, which was becoming more of a counter-proliferation. Non-proliferation was not working. It was very clear counter-proliferation offered the president a wide range of options to stop right. proliferation. And that was an opportunity for me to build upon relationships I had, knowledge I had, understanding of technologies used for critical technologies, used for nuclear weapons programs, and build a whole new set of networks of of colleagues who could help us stop it. Right. So much more gratifying, much more difficult, uh, but so much more gratifying. Well, this is where I think, you know, human intelligence really comes into play, because the, the, the technology available to do the job of detecting a state or an entity cheating on this, you know, everything from mass sent to overhead reconnaissance to some SIGINT, it's it can only do so much. And people can still find ways to to get around that, you know. So it seems like human is particularly needed to get inside the laboratories and get inside the businesses and get inside places. I don't care how good your satellites are, you know, you can't access this information. Um, and that's something that doesn't seem to be from the outside world doesn't seem to be understood or at least emphasized as much as look at our neat billion dollar uh, technologies that help prevent proliferation. Maybe I'm just making this up and maybe you can't say a single word about it. Um, but this, it, it does seem to be an all hands on deck 
fully necessary integration of not only all intelligence assets, but NGAs, international verification organizations across the board, sharing information. I mean, I think of Stuxnet, right? You can say as little or as much or nothing about Stuxnet all you want, but a lot of people assume Stuxnet was this magic uh, worm that didn't need any human element whatsoever. And it turns out that it certainly did, right? There needed to actually be an asset on the ground. It seems like ignoring human intelligence for a overemphasis on technology is something that will doom us in the counterproliferation field. Well said. <laughs> I, I, well, I, maybe I said too much then, and, and no. certainly. No, I, look, there's, there's no... Um... I, I, I can't imagine what people outside the community think about human because I don't know what they know and think about human. I can just tell you that inside uh, the organization, the humanters are busier than ever. Busier than ever. So. Absolutely. Let, let's, let's move on a little bit. Um, I'm not, I don't want to put you in a position to say anything or even want be, be uh, looking like I'm trying to pressure you to say anything that you can't say, and we perfectly understand that I'm not that usually here. pressured. <laughs> We're good. Let me ask you about insider threat detection <laughs> programs, because I think that's something that's a very key issue on this, because um, on face value, it looks like it's getting worse. But is this just a symptom of technology that has allowed for both easier access and either dissemination, or is it actually getting worse that we're we're having more leakers, more people who think that is it a generational thing or the millennials just think there should be more transparency kids these days or is it is it techno technologically based so um, I just spent uh, uh, a considerable four months I guess looking at the Pentagon papers and in response to your question about generational Every generation brings with it those who question authority, those who question um, what their government is doing, and many of them are inside the tent. And so it's important for uh, especially espionage organizations to you know, know your people well. When, when, when folks are having doubts about the work they're doing or the work their government is doing, it's really important for managers to stop what they're doing, sit down and talk. We can usually talk through these things and put context around things. And, and this is a democracy. No one has to work in the intel community. Nobody has to work in, the, in those areas of DOD. Um, while I was uh, the Deputy National Counterintelligence Executive, I had ample opportunities to look at uh, both the the WikiLeaks and the Snowden events, and there are it, it's just obvious there will always be people within the workforce who who disagree with something. Many of them won't have the greater context, and and that's where the real danger comes in. Right. Um, the second part of your question about technology. Um, Data aggregation has a place, it, but compartmentation does as well. Um, I was overseas when, when WikiLeaks began uh, dribbing and drabbing information all over the world and creating a lot of 
conversations uh, with foreign governments. Um, the notion that a very junior person in a small um, pod in faraway Iraq could access worldwide diplomatic cables, something's wrong with that. Right. That's just wrong. If you're going to run a government, if you're going to run an intel service particularly, you cannot afford to do business that way. And yet, if your job is to identify imminent threats to the nation and to our allies, it is important to have the tools available to quickly go through way more information than two eyes can read quickly. Right or then one brain can, can process quickly to aid you. So it is a great challenge. And I would argue, Vince, this is not just a challenge for the agency or for the intelligence community. This is a fundamental challenge for any company or any university or any laboratory that has intellectual property. It expects to you someday. Locking down the most important information for your future and knowing exactly who's touching it and why is now part of everybody's future. Right. Whether you work, whether you sell stuff at a mall or online, it has to, there has to come a little bit more of a reckoning on the balance side of data management and data protection. I'm not putting Manning or Snowden in this category, certainly not. But are whistleblower protections uh, powerful enough to solve some of these problems? Absolutely. You, you, so as hey, look, constituted or? Hey, look, I, when I was the Deputy National Counterintelligence Executive, we... The, the DNI at the time, uh, James R. Clapper, uh, he looked very uh, closely at the whistleblower acts. Um, we all did. I was, I was in the counterintelligence business. It was really important to us to create an environment and a assurances through regulation and law that people with doubts or concerns um, or information on waste, fraud, and abuse have mechanisms, trusted mechanisms to go to, and it's multiple levels. If you don't like your boss or trust your boss, go up the chain. If you don't like any of them, go to the ombuds. If you don't like mm -hmm. them, go to the IG. If you don't like them, I mean, there are so many places to go. Go to Congress. Go to people who have the bigger picture and who are in a position to help you. The media is not going to help you. Right. The media is going to disseminate your information, and it will provide a vehicle for discussion. But it cannot help you fix your issue. So the whistleblower protections, I believe, are, are robust. They are diverse. And I warmly welcome people to use them and to hold them accountable. Now, if they are not accountable, then, you know, as I've learned from reviewing 
the Pentagon Papers, Ellsberg went to Congress a number of times and right. said, would you listen to me? Would you publish these? Congress said no. I think it was someone like Thomas Drake as well who went, comment or not, went through 15 levels of whistleblowing and tried to get people to listen uh, and, and then at the end decided to go a different direction. That's why I don't put the Manning and Snowdens within the whistleblower. They did field, not they, they, do yeah, anything. Yeah. They simply took a selfish act and now they get to live with the with themselves. Well, Chelsea Manning's and in the, the case of now. Snowden, he gets to do so under <laughs> right, the care and protection of Russia. Uh, let me ask a couple questions, switching your gears again, because I we could talk about this forever, but I want to kind of get some of the key, key components in. I'll ask you several questions. You wrote an article uh, in the Georgetown Security Studies Review, or you, an article was was recent one was there, and, and it really focused on, uh, well, the title is Four Policy Actions Needed to Strengthen U.S. and Coalition Efforts Against Al-Qaeda, ISIL, and Hezbollah. I could talk to you about this for two hours, so I'm really only going to focus in on some very specific things. Um, and one of the things I found interesting I want to ask you about is our now 15-plus year operation against Al-Qaeda has given us pretty valuable insight into how to fight the war, their techniques, their MO, the way they do things. But isn't this a double-edged sword to a degree? They've learned a lot about us also, about how we operate, in particular, not just the military, but also our intelligence apparatus. They've, they've been able to study us for 15 years and how we've led the attack against them. I feel that an interesting dynamic that a lot of people haven't kind of delved into as much as they possibly should. So um, war is difficult, and war always comes with uh, the exposure of MO, one side to the other. Um, in the case of Al-Qaeda, it is not a state actor. It doesn't really have a way to fight back other than to hide and to keep shooting and hide and keep shooting. And so this, um, uh, the, the, the enormous capabilities of the U.S. and coalition governments, um, along with the permissions we've been granted to use very important geographic areas of the world, um, have permitted us to, 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 to to continue to stay into the fight. Um, fighting Al-Qaeda and ISIS is, is different from fighting the Taliban, however, and the Haqqani network. So um, I, I stuck in, in my Georgetown remarks. I, I was pretty focused on just the terrorism side mm -hmm. of things. Um, Hezbollah, very different animal. Very different animal indeed. It is. Yeah, you actually a, call them the most consequential terrorism challenge. Yes. You know, which, by far. Yeah. By far. I, I know that ISIS gets the headlines. I, I, I worry that Al Qaeda is not getting enough of the headlines because it is a resilient, hierarchical, determined uh, organization. In the article does but book Hezbollah the conventional is, trend. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No worries. Uh, you said something interesting. I, the conventional trend has been that AQ core, you know, that the people who attacked us on 9-11 from Afghanistan are not as problematic anymore. It's AQAP, it's AQ, you know, AQI, which becomes ISIS. It's the kind of diaspora of Al-Qaeda and almost the fact that they become decentralized that makes them particularly dangerous. But you, you go back and say, don't forget Al-Qaeda core. Don't forget Al-Qaeda core. Don't forget. Still, still something that, that could potentially be as dangerous as some of these other ways. 
They're well-funded, they're well-organized, they're disciplined, they're well-trained. Yay. <laughs> Hezbollah is by far, though, the, the organization I worry most about. Um, is it because of their ties to Iran and by proxy ties to Russia, or is it because, as you put in the article, or that they're almost a hybrid now of a part state in, you know, they build schools and education and they, in many cases, they're trying to separate them. Part of them are trying to separate themselves from the terrorism side of things. Right. Um, do we need two there policies? Is, there is a party Hezbollah? of God. So Hezbollah means yeah. party of God. And um, many Americans only know the terrorist wing mm -hmm. of Hezbollah. Uh, but the party of God is, is, um, is a very powerful political movement. Uh, they have been for many, many years building hospitals, schools. Now they're running the government with, with uh, a power-sharing arrangement. Um, they have sophisticated training, sophisticated doctrine uh, provided to them by Iran. They are, by all, um, by all measures, an extension of the IRGC, the Quds Force. And as um, I ended my career at the agency, it was really a a moment of, of, of reckoning for me after many, many years of working on that issue that we were hearing from Hezbollah government officials, not the terrorists, mm -hmm. we don't sit down with them, but we do sit down with elected governments. And the governments run by Hezbollah were saying, hey, we're friends now against ISIS. Well, this, was, is, this is a new day. Yeah, for those of us that aren't, so knee-deep in this, I remember the story when ISIS went after Hezbollah and they were fighting each other and a lot of people were kind of scratching their heads like, wait, what side are we supporting here? It's Hezbollah and ISIS. It's, it's obviously the kind of the Sunni-Shiite divide, but you have terrorists attacking terrorists all of a sudden and, you know, and that, that but, was confusing for a lot of people. It, it shouldn't be confusing and, yeah. and I would urge uh, your listeners to do just a little bit more research Al-Qaeda's number one target is undoubtedly the United States. Number two is Israel. Sometimes it's a, it's a tie between one and two. But their number three target are the Shia. You know, you don't, I, I, I obviously understand that, but it was rare to see Al-Qaeda and Tehran blowing up a building or a bus. Or, or you know, It happens, but it, yeah. it doesn't. It usually is headline worthy because it didn't seem to be a major target. And and when when ISIS went directly after Hezbollah and like full fledged firefights and other things, it was like this is this is interesting to see kind of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And kind of you mentioned the whole like we're allies now. It's a new day. Yeah, it's a new day. And I and I wonder, are we making up our policy as we go along? And I'm not saying that in a negative connotation. I'm saying that are we are we being correctly adaptable to how the shifting winds in the Middle East because they happen so quickly are we are we being necessarily adaptable to changing alliances and potential new avenues of diplomacy and potential new alliances I think of the the Kurds all of a sudden and we have to shift again because now the Turks are fighting the, our allies are we 
are we adaptable enough or are we flexible enough to do this well or are we kind of kind of stuck back in this idea of you know what do we do when all of a sudden Hezbollah wants to be friends or at least the political side the political of Hezbollah party, wants the to be friends political party yeah not right. the terrors um, are we adaptable look I think that um, the post 9-11 period required the national security community writ large to re-examine ideologies that worked in the Cold War and and alliance structures that worked in the Cold War and economic structures that worked in the Cold War. It, it took time to re-examine how, how did they work in an asymmetric warfare fashion and in the asymmetric relationship fashion um, and it took some time to move the the, the, the great big uh, aircraft carrier that is the National Security Council and the National Security Apparatus which is even bigger mm-hmm. um, it took time to understand the origins of Al-Qaeda its doctrine its tactics, its procedures, and how we were going to work against those very things instead of just carpet bombing everything. Right. So, so remember, in the early days, we just carpet bomb Afghanistan. Over time, you know, a lot a lot of good things happened by carpet bombing. It put it put a lot of terrorists on notice. It put the Taliban on notice. It, it put Pakistan on notice. Um, it put the entire world on notice that we were going to be serious about this. But it took time. And now my concern is that we are so busy with our day-to-day work that's been presented at our front door. We talked about the front door before. It's a very busy front door. When a shift happens, when a paradigm shift happens, Hezbollah says, hey, we're friends now. We have to give ourselves time to let that wash over ourselves right. and think about that because there are th- second and third order consequences to saying yes or no. Turkey is our ally. Turkey is NATO. There are ramifications if we now say in Lebanon, yeah, we'll go, we'll, we'll go do that. What does that mean for our relationship with the Kurds? What does that mean for our relationship with Iran? Mm-hmm. What does it, what does it signal to Iran? Um, what we have treaty obligations that are pretty tangled. George Washington told us to be careful about right. foreign entanglements, and we're pretty tangled right now. Well, it's hard um, to be involved at all in, the, in that area of the world without lots of tangles coming from ten different directions. I mean, the fact right. that you know being allied with Saudi Arabia and then at the same time trying to have deals with other countries that might be diametrically opposed. Not just Israel, but talking about Iran and any of the other Shiite right. countries. Yeah, uh, it's a lot of juggling. Does the CIA have an advantage because of secrecy and being able to not have? Obviously, there still is a weight of domestic politics and domestic consequences, but because of the ability to operate in secret for most of the time, can you be more flexible in the kind of conversations that you have with people that might not be able to? Like, you couldn't send. Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State to have a conversation with Hezbollah. I'm not sure that would go over very well. 
here in the domestic policy, but you as a, a case, the Lebanon chief of station could perhaps have a clandestine meeting and start that diplomatic process more than the State Department could or otherwise. It is vital to have space for a confidential or clandestine conversation one country to another. It is vital. It, it will come as no surprise to you or your listeners that sometimes politicians lie. Um, uh, so true in other countries. Uh, it is really important for any president to be able to dispatch someone with a message to discuss tough stuff in a quiet, safe, and secure environment where we can sketch out the potential framework for a more public conversation. That's particularly true for countries we don't get along It is well particularly enough. true with people we don't have relationships with yeah. or that we don't, um, from, a, from a public policy perspective, side with. Um, if I've learned anything over my 32 years in government, um, we need friends. This is a very challenging world. The United States is an incredible place. But if we had to do everything all by ourselves with no help from any foreign allies, we would struggle. Right. Well, we did struggle when we tried We're to do it We're not too ourselves. big yeah. for help. Yeah. So alliances are really important, but knowing exactly what we've gotten ourselves into in various alliances is vital. Right. I think this is a really good... Um, inflection point in the 21st century. We're having uh, opportunities to reset various relationships and to re-examine old assumptions. And I do think that it unnerves some of our allies when we do this, but but it's honest. And and every two or three decades, it, it's really important for America to reset its relationships and re-examine what's important to us. Let me ask you one final wrap-up question. Um, what, what do you see as the major national security challenge moving forward? I know there's a lot. Can't say everything. Asymmetry is obviously an issue, Russia, China. Something like things that might be 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road, like climate change or bioweapons or anything. And, and you can combine this answer if you want to with uh, an institutional challenge question. Like CIA has gone through tons of transitions, even during just your career, but going all the way back to its inception. And some of them have worked, some of them not so much, some of them better than others. And I don't think that we're, we're done with the transition that took place after 9-11 even. I think that, you know, with the, um, the ERTPA or whatever acronym you want to use for the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act 2004, that, that I think is dynamic. I think that we're still trying to figure out whether that, that, how that's going to end up. But is there a kind of a way to bring these questions together in a hybrid and say, is the challenge to CIA going forward going to be something external, like a, a Russia or a climate change, or is it going to be an internal challenge, or a little bit of both? I, I'm asking you to you can wax philosophic in whatever direction that wow, you want. Wow, that's to. really <laughs> big, Vince. Um, feel, feel free to make it smaller. Uh, I just kind of want to put it in your corner. Like, what what do you look for in the next 30 years as being like this is going to be the thing that we've got to deal with that's going to really kind of cause us all to come together and figure out how to do it? So we are 
arguably 20-some years into the cyber age. Um, I like to tell people on the cyber front, um, the Manhattan Project brought you the atomic weapon, and we, we used those weapons on Japan way before we understood all of the ramifications of it. In 1974, we signed the NPT. It took a long time for the United States and the world community to come together around certain norms that we could agree to on nonproliferation, which we've already agreed doesn't stop proliferation. Mm -hmm. Cyber policy will mature and develop over the next 30 years, or it will become... Uh, uh, the world will become very anarchic. Mm -hmm. And and I don't think the Westphalian nation-state is is in the rearview mirror. I, I still believe in sovereignty. I believe that there will be a strong determination by 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 nations to have the the respect of their boundaries and their ability to to care and feed their own people mm -hmm. and to protect them in whatever way they need. Cyber plays a role in enabling um, education and discovery and innovation, um, freeing more markets to find each other in, in, in the uh, IP world. Um, but there's a great danger in it as well. And you see the darkening of the web. You see it being used for weaponization purposes for um, harm to others on so many different levels that I do uh, sincerely hope that, that we will see a U.S.-led, um, constitutionally-led um, movement across the planet. And it could mean that it will, it will create new alliances, alliances that weren't that important to us before. Uh, will suddenly take on uh, a new a new depth of meaning and and duration. Um, you mentioned climate change. Um, I am um, I'm not sure climate change will be the big issue in the next thirty years, other than as a cause. Mm -hmm. I, I do worry about massive dislocations of large large, large populations. And what does that mean for sovereignty? What does that mean for boundary? What does it mean for human dignity? Resource allocations. What does it mean yeah. for taking care of people? Yeah. Uh, there is plenty of food to feed people mm -hmm. on this earth. And if food becomes a weapon, or water becomes a weapon, um, I'm not sure what we look like. Right. 30 to 50 years from now. Well, I mean, Somalia is a good case study because of where food and water fight. was used. People, yeah, people will fight, fight to live. Yeah. And they will ally themselves with people who want to fight to live. And so I really um, look to the United States to be a leader in setting the norms and the uh, frameworks for people to succeed. You took a ridiculously broad question and did an exceptional job of, of bringing it together and something uh, worth listening to. So uh, Paula Doyle was our guest today. If you want a chance to read um, her article in the Georgetown Security Studies Review, uh, that's online. 
Um, but it's called Four Policy Actions Needed to Strengthen U.S. and Coalition Efforts Against Al-Qaeda, ISIL, and Hezbollah. Uh, that you just Google it and it'll pop up and you get a chance to read through it. Uh, you also teach at Georgetown, so there's an incentive uh, for those of you looking for potential uh, grad schools and undergrads that get a chance to learn from someone who had an extraordinary career, uh, not only at CIA, but also throughout the ICN and the foreign policy world. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. We truly appreciate the time. Thank you, Vince. Thanks for the invitation. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.